0: Would you turn with me to the Acts and chapter 7 and we will read again those verses we read last night. Chapter 7 of Acts from verse 2. And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy land, and from thy kindred, and come into the land, which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, God removed him into the land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. And he promised that he would give it to him in possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And then in the Hebrew letter, in the Hebrew letter and chapter 11, Hebrews chapter eleven, from verse ten, from verse eight. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out into a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he became a sojourner in the land of promise as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then in the Genesis, the book of Genesis, And chapter 12, from verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and be thou a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curseth thee will I curse. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then I want to turn you to the second psalm. The second psalm. Psalm 2. From verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said unto me, Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance. And the outermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And finally, <clears throat> in the 11th chapter of Romans, Romans and chapter 11 from verse 24. Romans chapter 11, verse, from verse 24. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree, and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brothers, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel, until the full number of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Shall we just bow in a word of prayer? Beloved Lord, we're so glad that we're gathered here in your presence. We're glad that we've been able to worship you. And now as we come just to the ministry of your word, we want to confess and acknowledge before you that without that anointing grace and power which you have so dearly won for us at Calvary, It will amount to nothing. Many words, many truths, Bible teaching, but it will amount to nothing. But Lord, we are so thankful that when there is an anointing upon both the speaking and hearing, the eyes of our hearts are illumined and we come to know what is the hope of our calling. Dear Lord, we pray this evening that you will grant that that anointing in full measure be upon the speaking of your word, the translating of it, and the hearing of it. We stand into it by faith, and we shall be careful to give you the praise and the worship of our heart for answering this our prayer. We ask it in the name of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I think you all know what the theme of this conference is. I was, therefore, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And we've been considering that in three ways. In uh, the life of Abraham, in the person of our Lord Jesus, and in the life of the Apostle Paul. And my responsibility has been Abraham. I think the... I'm always amazed at the simplicity of God's Word when it comes to really big matters. And uh, the simplicity of this statement by Stephen just before he was martyred, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. That's my responsibility to talk about the heavenly vision in connection with Abraham. Think for a moment the God of glory there could have been many other ways that uh, by the Holy Spirit Stephen could have spoken of that vision that Abraham had but he said it was the God of glory that appeared to our father Abraham Man was made for the glory of God. Man is constituted in such a way that apart from God's glory, he is incomplete. God never meant us to be just flesh and blood. He meant us to inherit incorruption and glory. It is put very simply by the Apostle Paul, again by the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In that one single sentence, You have the whole story of mankind. The fall of man. We have all sinned and therefore we have fallen short of the glory of God. That which we were created for, that which we were destined for, we have fallen short of it. But what is glory? There are certain words that cannot be adequately put into language. You have to have it revealed to you. For instance, the word grace. People go into reams of explanation about what is grace. But the simplest and most uneducated child of God, once the Holy Spirit reveals what grace is to them, they live in it. It becomes their life. How can you explain grace? Unmerited favor, that leaves me cold. I've heard thousands of explanations for grace. I can hardly explain it myself. All I know is that I experience His grace every day. I know exactly what it is even if I cannot put it into a word. It's mercy, yes, and more. It is love, yes, and more. Steadfast, persistent, loyal, Love, yes, and more. It is covenant love. Yes, it is. It is amazing, this word grace. Now, <coughs> glory is another word. I find it <coughs> pathetic when some of the new versions call, ha, have translated it splendor. We were made for splendor. The, the, it, it's a devaluation. Of the word glory. What is glory? Glory is the manifested presence of God. It is when God is so satisfied. So, if I may so use it of the Lord. Thrilled with what he sees. That his very person is manifested. That is glory. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, nobody could stand in it. They all fell on their faces before the Lord. It has happened again and again and again. John says, we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Uh, He was the manifested presence of God. The heart and mind of God expressed, revealed, articulated. He was the word that was in the beginning. That word that was with God. And that word that was God. A word is a thought that you cannot understand in a person's head articulated Um, uh, I I prefer articulated I know I shouldn't say this on July the 4th but it's a good English expression (laughs) if we put it in good American English verbalized here it is on the July the 4th verbalized the mind of God verbalized articulated put into expression expressed in words. No wonder Jesus uh, uh, said he was the Alpha and the Omega. That is the whole alphabet of God, the language of God, the means by which we can understand the heart and mind of God in the most practical and relevant manner. Glory. Did you realize that you, a sinner as you are, Do I realize, sinner as I am, that we were created for the glory of God? Not just to glorify God, but that the very glory of God should be in us. When the Lord Jesus was transfigured in glory, there is a common idea amongst Christians that a spotlight sort of came out of heaven. A glorious, unbelievable white light shone onto the Lord Jesus like a spotlight. And he glistered with it. That is not what happened. What happened was that the light went on inside of him and through his very hair his skin his body his clothes this glory shone did you do you realize that you were made for that glory only through sin did we fall short when this great turning point in divine history came about the God of glory appeared to a man who was a sinner living an empty life in a successful business and it was there That the Lord revealed himself to Abraham, the God of glory. I don't suppose that Abraham had ever heard of glory as such. But when the God of glory appeared to him, he was never the same again. God touched him, changed him, redirected him. And Abraham began the pilgrimage that would lead him to the city of God. The Apostle Peter put all of this very simply. In his first letter, in the fifth chapter and verse 10, the God of all grace, There's that word again. The God of all grace who hath called you to his eternal glory in the Messiah, Jesus. You could almost say that's a commentary on what happened with Abraham. The God of glory appeared to Abraham called him to his eternal glory in the Messiah, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Or I think of so many other scriptures that I could uh, take you to. I think of the wonderful words in Hebrews and, um, and chapter 2 and verse uh, 10. It reads like this, For it became him, Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Bringing many sons to glory. I think of another scripture that comes to my mind in Romans chapter 9 and verse 23 and 24. And that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also. From the Gentiles. Isn't that a wonderful word? Vessels of mercy. Are four prepared. For glory. Think about it. Are you a vessel of mercy? Do you realize just how your whole standing before God. Is to do with his mercy. With his grace. And have you ever realized. That God from the moment you were born was preparing you for glory before you even came to a saving knowledge of himself. He was preparing you for glory. Vessels of mercy prepared to glory. Not just the Jews through whom and in whom God first began to work but also the Gentiles. What a wonderful uh, picture we have here. Everywhere you turn in the word of God, you will find this matter of glory. And the trouble is, because glory is a sort of strange word, it somehow runs off us. We, we don't, <clears throat> it doesn't have the impact on us. That it ought to have. I think of a very well known scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with unveiled face. That's what happens when you're a child of God. And when you let the Holy Spirit really deal with you. When you surrender to the Lord. Then you have an unveiled face. Otherwise there's a veil. You don't see. But once you make him Lord. And once you allow him. To do what he wants to do with you. Then it's an unveiled face. But we all with unveiled face. Beholding as in a mirror. The glory of the Lord. Are transformed into the same image. From glory to glory. Even as from the Lord the Spirit. So it is the ministry of the blessed Holy Spirit of God who is supervising our being changed from glory to glory. (laughs) Actually, in our experience, it seems more like change from tribulation to tribulation, from affliction to affliction. But it is one capacity for glory to a greater capacity for glory. So then, you see, a a marvellous... A pilgrimage begins for every child of God once you obey the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you're living in contradiction to that law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you not only have a veiled face, you have a, you have a civil war going on. between you and the Lord. But once that civil war is done with, and you surrender to the Lord, you give Him the the keys of your whole life, and allow the Holy Spirit to really supervise your life, and lead you in the way that He wants to lead you, then you are moving from glory to glory. Listen again, same letter. verse 17, For our light affliction which is, for the moment, works for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful word? Our light affliction for a moment. Sometimes I almost question that, is it just a moment? It's a question of um, how you compare, what you compare it with. If you compare it with the eternal weight of glory that is being worked in you, then it is a moment, a light affliction for a moment. Some of us, who have had many, many problems, forms in the flesh, difficulties that we have lived with, and we pleaded with the Lord to take them, and He has not taken them, but instead has said, my grace is sufficient for you. When one day we arrive in, in, in the presence of the Lord, we shall bow before Him in absolute worship. That those things which seemed so long, so heavy, so continuous in fact worked for us an eternal weight of glory if we look at the scene at the, what is seen the visible it's not so but if we look beyond that to that which cannot be seen and we behold the Lord Jesus then it is an eternal weight of glory. It was this God of glory who appeared to Abraham. It changed his life from being an idol worshipper an idol maker a salesman of idols he became a pilgrim on a journey that would lead him to glory it was the God of glory there are two people I have met in my life who before they died I actually saw the glory of God in them. Now I know that sounds very strange because they will be glorified ahead. (laughs) But uh, one was Maria Monson. I have never forgotten my last visit with Maria Monson. That great missionary in China, in northeast China. She was so weak, she could not lift a cup to her lip. But I have never forgotten the aura of light around her, in her body, actually in her. And for the first time, I didn't tell her, but for the first time I understood why they put saints with that circle of light around them I used to think why did it in our Jewish tradition we have a flame of fire on everyone who's a saint but in the Christian tradition it's a circle of gold that is around them I saw it in her and the other one was someone nobody here I think would know Dalmas Felmer He was the matron of one of the biggest hospitals in Copenhagen. And when I went to see her shortly before she died, she came down on the arm of a Salvation Army officer. She was in the home for those who were terminally ill. And it was as if light shone through her whole body and through her very hair. I've never forgotten. Glory is not something that belongs to a fairy tale. It is real. It is something so real that the very light of God, the presence of the Lord Jesus in a human being can shine through them in their weakness and in their last moment. If that could be when we're down here, Can you imagine what it will be when once you and I are transfigured in glory? This then is tremendous. It was the God of glory that appeared to Abraham and he was never the same again. I think probably he had the same desire in his heart That was in Moses' heart. When the Lord spoke with him, used him, met with him, did so much with him. And Moses said, when the Lord said, Tell me what I shall do. And he said, Show me thy glory. That's like the Apostle Paul. The more he saw of the Lord, the more he knew, he did not know. You get it? The more he experienced of the Lord, the more he knew there was to experience of the Lord yet. It became an obsession with him. It became something that, as it were, um, uh, uh, took up his whole life, his mind, his heart. I press on toward the goal, to the pride of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Vision. I'm so sorry when Christians have no heavenly vision. Because your birthright as a child of God is to see. Not with these eyes, but to see with the eyes of your heart. That's your birthright. The Lord Jesus died for you that you might live and you might see. I'm so sorry when people live in a cramped, uh, uh, straitjacket A type of Christianity that is somehow... so practical show me thy glory we have no record that Abraham ever said that only Moses but I don't doubt that when the God of glory appeared to him Abraham s- suddenly All that was temporal, transient, tinsel, nonsense, vanity, fell away. Of course, I will say something about it tomorrow evening. The problem was still there. The Lord had to deal with a whole lot of things with uh, Abraham. But in that moment when the God of glory appeared to him, I think it was as if all that he thought was life became death. All that he thought was so important and weighty was suddenly shown up to be nothing, vanity, useless. So, dear child of God, you and I have been Created for the glory of God. And if we have been saved by the grace of God. If we have been born of the spirit of God. Then these wonderful words come into our spirit. The God of all grace. You will need it. The God of all grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory. In Christ is after that you have suffered a little while. Himself establish you. Strengthen you. Yes. I think it's tremendous. But I must move on. I don't want to uh, spend the whole evening on this. In the God of glory. Abraham saw the city. Which has the foundations. I I must say, in my estimation, Abraham saw more than many Christians. It says, he went out of Ur of the Chaldees, no mean city. Part of the Babel complex of cities, of the ancient civilization. But the moment the God of glory appeared to him, he was lost for Ur of the Chaldees. This sophisticated urban dweller became a keeper of sheep and goats and camels. As I often say when speaking about Moses, the most smelly of creatures. If you've ever kept goats, you know they can smell. If you've ever kept sheep, they're a little better. But if you've ever kept camels, the smell. This amazing man became a herdsman, a shepherd, a goat herd. And he journeyed and he didn't know where really he was going. He never did actually see, as far as we know he never ever entered the city of Jerusalem. but the writer of the, of the Hebrew letter says he sought for the city which has the foundations you would have thought that the Babel complex of cities would have been city a civilization with foundation magnificent Even today, in the archaeological excavations, we have discovered post offices, ladies' hairdo hairdo shops, (laughs) cosmetics, jewellery. In a famous exhibition of jewellery a while ago, modern jewellery, they had a number of pieces modelled on earth of the Chaldeans. It was no means. City. <clears throat> but the Word of God says Abraham left it all because he'd been captured by another city, a city which has the, the foundations. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 10 and 11 tells us of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Having the glory of God. Here we've got it. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. And now he sought the city which in the end will possess the glory of God. I think... In seeing this city, within the vision of the God of glory, Abraham understood the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. You know, I've said it before, but I will say it again. One of the great themes of the Bible is two cities, the tale of two cities. One is Babel, the other is Jerusalem. (coughs) In Hebrew, Babel is the term used in the Hebrew Bible and in the Hebrew translation of the New Testament for Babylon. Babylon is the Greek word for Babel. That gives an amazing continuity. Because look at it. Think for a moment. Genesis 11 you have the whole story of Babel. Genesis 12 you have the God of glory appearing to our father Abraham. And in that moment he became a pilgrim. A sojourner in a land that he was to inherit and a seeker after Jerusalem. In other words, from Genesis 11 and 12... You have in Genesis 11 the beginning of Babylon and you run right the way through the whole of your Bible, the 66 books, until you come to Revelation 17, 18 and the first part of 19. And that is the end of Babel, the end of Babylon. And if from Genesis 12, running right the way through the whole of your Bible, you have Jerusalem. Of course, it was a physical city, Jerusalem. God chose it, and nobody else would have chosen it. It is one of the most extraordinary things, when you reflect upon this matter, that God chose a city which didn't have a proper uh, water supply. The water supply was outside of the city walls at the time of David. It was Hezekiah that brought it within the walls. But even that was precarious. Can you imagine anyone taking a city as a capital city that hadn't got a proper, secure water supply to keep the people in time of war, in time of siege? It is amazing. Jerusalem has no harbor. It has no great canals. It has no great navigable rivers. It is not on any great crossroads. Oh, the The only reason why Jerusalem has become a household word for the world is because God chose her. And God said again and again, you shall not offer your offerings everywhere where you choose, but in the place where I will cause my name to dwell. Now that is a most extraordinary phrase. The place where I will cause my name to dwell. Think about it. People who read their Bibles uh, often, they, they don't think about this. Have you ever heard of a city where someone's name is caused to dwell? What in the world does it mean? In, in, in the word of God, names have meaning. Uh, of Abraham, ha- exalted father. Abraham, a- Abraham, father of a multitude, the father of all who believe. Yaakov, twister. Israel, prince with God. Yosef, Joseph, addition, multiplication, expansion. Uh, 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 Yitzhak, laughter. Laughter. It's amazing, The these names. Mo- Moses, Moshe, drawn out. He certainly was drawn out. He should have been eaten by a crocodile. But he was drawn out by no one less than Pharaoh's daughter. It is amazing. And his ministry was to draw out a people from Egypt. Everywhere you look, names mean something. Names uh, express the character, the personality, and in a sense, the prophetic destiny of that person. Now, when God says... You shall not offer your sacrifices or your offerings anywhere where you choose, but in the place where I will cause my name to dwell. What he meant was this. This city is to be the expression of my character. It is to represent my heart and my mind. It is to represent truth. It is to represent the reign of God. It is to represent The kingdom of God. It is to represent the Messiah of God. It is to represent the salvation of God. Therefore, Jerusalem will never disappear in spite of her sin. In spite of her prostitution. In spite of her disobedience. Babylon is gone. Thebes is gone. Ramses is gone. All these great cities of antiquity. Shushan, Nineveh. Name it. they have all gone. But not Jerusalem. Jerusalem has survived them all. Why? It says in the book of Revelation. Sodom. Where our Lord was crucified. That's how the book of Revelation describes the Jerusalem down here. But the fact that it has never disappeared. Is because it represents the mind of God. Whereas Babel. And that name by the way. We don't know how it ever got chosen because it means confusion in Hebrew. And that is the perfect epitaph of fallen man's ingenuity and genius. Confusion. League of Nations, United Nations, disunited everything. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy really. Confusion. Every time they are trying to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven and to unite heaven, and a great golden age of prosperity and all the rest of it, brotherhood and equality, and what happens? It becomes a prison. Marxism became a prison. Nazism became a prison. Maoism became a prison. Great philosophy, great ideals. But it's confusion. Why? Because it has no foundations. It is not built on eternal foundations. It is not the God of glory. It is not that city which in the end will possess the glory of God. Now, I don't know whether what I'm saying, because I can hardly see you from here. I could be speaking into thin air and nobody there. (laughs) But if I look at my Bible, the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 20 to 21, I have the most extraordinary correspondence. In the beginning, there is a, a, a garden. At the end, there is a city. At the beginning there is the tree of life. At the end there is the tree of life. The beginning there is a river of life. At the end there is a river of life. It is amazing. There are trees in the beginning, a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the Adam and Eve were told not to touch. At the end you have those trees bearing fruit for the he- uh, leaves for the healing of the nation. It is amazing. And the most extraordinary thing of all, it's as if this Bible that God has given us is all to do with a city. That's what Abraham saw. He saw that the whole history of this world is basically explained by the city of God, the new Jerusalem. The one when this earthly Jerusalem disappears, she will not disappear until she disappears into the glory of that new Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem. Till then she is here as a symbol of God himself. I wish This could be more clear, but you know, when you come to that city at the end of the Bible, you find the most amazing thing. In the first three chapters, you have the marriage of Adam and Eve. And in the last three chapters, you have the marriage of the lamb and the wife of the lamb. That goes to the heart of the Bible. Open it, roughly, at the heart. And what have you got? You have the Song of Songs. A story of a love relationship between God and the redeemed. He will not let them go. Even when they become lukewarm and tepid and when they become self-satisfied and settle down, as it were. He will not let them go. He goes through until stage by stage he's brought that beautiful bride that he so loved to the place where she says, I am my beloved. To begin with, it was, my beloved is mine. I've seen that a number of times. My beloved is mine. And I am his. If you didn't hear that, that was deliberate. I am his. (laughs) Then after a little bit of dealing, she said, I am his. She put it a different way. I am my beloved. And he is mine. Oh, Jane! But there were a few more dealings, and then she said, "I'm his." And here is the amazing thing: for the first time, she thinks of others. What about my little sister? She said, "She's not got mature. She hasn't developed. What can we do for her?" This is the Bible. Do you really believe that Abraham actually saw something like this? Before some of these things were even written, I believe it is entirely possible for a human being to understand the purpose of God if the Holy Spirit is present. He may not have indwelled, but he still ministered. Or think again, has it ever occurred to you that when the Lord Jesus began his messianic ministry, the first miracle was in a wedding? John makes so much of this. This was his first miracle. It began in a wedding where he turned water into wine. Well... Throughout history, as far as the Bible is concerned, there are only two cities. And all human beings belong to one or the other. You either belong to Babylon or you belong Jerusalem. And that's why the 87th psalm says, when the Lord writes up the peoples, he says, This one was born there. Even though their original birth was in Babylon or in Philistia or Tyre or the other places, now they're born again. They're registered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of us all. But it is more than that. <coughs> This this, this it purpose of God is to not only redeem human beings, but to bring them into such a relationship with Himself that they, they grow to mu- maturity, where they will be able to reign with Him. That city at the end of the Bible with which this amazing revelation of the heart and mind of God in these 66 books, ends, is of a capital city and a wife. Two extraordinarily, extraordinarily different ideas. A city, a capital city, the center of administration... The center of a civil service. The center where the policies of a kingdom, of an empire, are dictated and, and, and ordered, commanded. And a wife. The most intimate relationship known to mankind. Husband and wife. If we suffer with him, we shall also Be glorified with him. Isn't it interesting that that wonderful church at Ephesus, the Lord was prepared to take away the lampstand out of its place for one single reason. They had left their first love. So when you come to the city of God, it is a matter of Of first love. It is a matter of being in love with the Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength and with all your mind. And Jesus said, the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Such is the city of God, reigning with him and in love with him. As I've often said, the Lord is not interested in an eternal civil service, a bureaucracy that knows exactly what should be done and knows how to do it and do it with the minimum of fuss and the greatest of efficiency not always true, of bureaucracy. But that will never satisfy the Lord. He will only be satisfied with a companionship that has sprung out of devotion and love. That is the meaning and significance of this city. Well uh, you can see how tremendous this whole subject is and I wish <laughs> really one could spend even longer on it but uh, you you can see straight away that the god of glory spoilt abraham for anything less than the city which has the foundations that is the heavenly The Ephesian letter of the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5 that the Lord Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, a church of glory, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So if we at least get something here that is, I think, tremendous, Uh, we begin to understand something about Abraham. We are now in the process, if I may say this and, and move on to the last point I want to make. We are now in the process of a tremendous attempt of Satan to regain the whole world. It is the final attempt to Babylonize the whole world. You have globalization. It is just label. You have now more and more, the whole world is becoming a global village. We speak almost one language. Unbelievable. It is incredible what is happening, and happening so fast that you can almost be overtaken by it and and not wake up to what is happening. We are coming to the chapters in Revelation 13 to 19. It's always been the same. If you look at Daniel's prophecy, you will see that those four great empires came out of a typhoon-driven sea. Storm-tossed. Out of it came one after another, after another, after another. When you look at it in Revelation 13, we're not told that the sea is typhoon-driven, but it's the same sea. And out of it comes a homogenizing of all four empires. It is the final great empire. The final great antichrist world. It is Satan's last great attempt to take the world. Satan is incredible. I must be careful what I say. But Satan is an incredible person. Because, in one sense, he studies the Bible, he comes to a prayer meetings, he listens sometimes, if he thinks they're important enough, in conferences. He takes in all the things that God has shown us by his Spirit, and still he believes that he can win. That is incredible to me. He's been beaten every time he's ever attempted to frustrate the purpose of God. The Lord has turned the tables and defeated him. And out of it has come tremendous blessing and salvation. Why does he go on? Unless he is eaten up with pride. And believes that he can still frustrate the purpose of God and the coming of the King the Lord Jesus well I say this is tremendous and I, why do you think the Lord is shaking everything this shaking began in my estimation with the first world war And then was carried on in the Second World War and has grown ever since. And now we have come to the place where everything is being shaken. Turmoil over the whole world. It doesn't matter where you turn, there is turmoil. You have Chavez in South America. You have uh, 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 Ahmadinejad in Iran. It doesn't matter where you turn. You have Putin in Russia. Um, You've got amazing things happening everywhere you look. What is it that's happening? And then you have Islamic terror. Islam has an agenda to take the whole world. It will fail. By the grace of God. Why? Because Antichrist is not that type of person. He's not like Nero or Hitler or Mao or or Stalin. Uh, 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 uh. This Antichrist if I may say it without being ups- upsetting anyone, is more Clinton-esque. <laughs> affable, affable, forgivable, attractive, even when he sins. That's the final figure that will come, dear friends. Is it anyone that God is shaking everything? You know why He's shaking it. Basically, to shake anybody who can be shaken out of what is transient and temporal into what is eternal and forever. The wonderful prophecy in Joel speaks about the very final stage of this age and says, And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank God for shaking. Because what it will do is it will shake businesses to people uh, into pieces. Shake families into pieces. Shake all kinds of religious routine into pieces. And bring people to the place where they seek and search for that which is unshakable. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God. I say, it is tremendous. And some people are very afraid of the shaking. I'm not. I know who's shaking. You know the Lord, and he's doing the shaking. I'm not the least bit afraid. Let him go on shaking. I want to see the whole thing come to a quick end. And enough of it. All this turmoil, this misrepresentation we have, and so on. I mean, the sooner it all ends, the better. With the coming of the Lord. I'm not afraid of the shaking. I imagine many of you are not either. Thank God. If the Lord wants to shake out of us. What is shakable. Let him do it. We shall only praise him in the end. That he brought us to the place. Where what could be shaken. Was shaken out of us. And we we came to focus. On what is unshaken. Now, dear friends, I said there's one other thing I want to say, and it's quite important. It is that the whole Abraham, when, he's, when the God of glory appeared to him, he saw the city which has the foundations. He understood the whole purpose of God was centered in, that, in one sense, in, in, in that coming city, in one sense. But far more important, and this is my last point, He saw the whole purpose of God centered in the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 8 and verse 56, it says very simply, Jesus, the words of our Lord Jesus, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw and rejoiced. What did Abraham see? Isn't that amazing? that nearly 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus appeared on this earth, Abraham had seen his day and had rejoiced. It's not some kind of dim sort of apparition that appeared to him and he wondered, well, I wonder what that's all about. But he rejoiced. He saw that the whole purpose of God was centered, focused on the Lord Jesus, on the Messiah. He would bring salvation. He would bring the gospel. Good news. He would build the church. He would save Israel. I say it is amazing. Listen to the words of the Lord when he appeared to Abraham. And I will make a great nation. And I will bless you, and be a blessing. And those that bless you, I will bless. And those in Hebrew that disesteem you, I will curse. And in you, in your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed in that extraordinary revelation of the God of glory and the words of the Lord, you had the whole history of mankind from Abraham to this day. A great nation, yes. I don't fear to say it, that he was speaking about Israel. It says in the book of Numbers, Chapter 23 and verse 9, that this people shall dwell alone and shall not be counted with the nations. In other words, it is a uniqueness to this nation that came out of the bowels of Abraham that has lasted all the way through history to this day. Could you believe that all these years, nearly 4,000 years later, the whole world is in turmoil over a little portion of territory not bigger than the state of New Jersey? Think of that. As small as Hungary in Europe or Portugal in Europe, like the North Island of New Zealand, size of Tasmania in Australia. Could you believe the whole world? 4,000 years later is in turmoil over this little state. That means they have outlasted everything to this day. I call that a great nation. It reveals... Not the ingenuity of the Jewish people or the intelligence of the Jewish people that they have. But it doesn't reveal that. What it reveals is the absolute faithfulness of God. He says in his word, very clearly, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, the predestinating will and purpose of God, they are beloved. For the patriarch's sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let it sink in. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That explains why Israel is today in existence, recreated. That explains every attempt to to exterminate them has failed. It explains the amazing thing that is happening in Israel where Israelis are coming to know the Lord Jesus. Only just a little trickle. But it is the beginning of a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit which will be the completion of the history of redemption. Dear child of God, this is, I say we could spend a lot of time on this subject, but I'm not going to. All I'm going to say is this, the misrepresentation of Israel, the growing hatred of Israel, the growing anti-Semitism now seen in anti-Israelism, means simply that Satan knows that his end is near. He has always understood that once the salvation of the house of Israel comes near, his time is over. So he will raise up people like Ahmad Edinejad and others who vow to exterminate her. Some people believe that there will never be another holocaust. They think that the the Nazi holocaust was the last ever. I don't. Do you mean to tell me Satan's dead? He's not dead. And because he's not dead, he will do it again. And that is the seriousness of the situation in the Middle East and at the same time this misrepresentation by the media, the world media which has basically put Israel in such a terrible light that many people think like they did in German, Nazi Germany it might be just as well if they are exterminated but they will not be exterminated did you read those words in Psalm 2? Where it says, ask of me and I will give thee the Gentiles for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. These are the words of the Father to the Son concerning the uh, the Lord. The, the Jewish people, he says, my, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion but did you notice also about why do the nations meditate a vain thing why are they in uproar why do the rulers and the kings say let us, let us um, uh, throw away these bonds, these fetters exactly what is happening now this whole great movement to throw overboard the law of God what God has said about abortion what God has said about gay rights what God has said about euthanasia, about anything else. Throw it overboard. We don't want it. It doesn't belong to modern culture. I read those words in Romans for one reason. You have the mystery of the church and you have the mystery of Israel. And this great apostle through whom has come so much revelation Concerning the body of our Lord Jesus, the church, is also the one who said, I would not rather have you ignorant of this mystery, the mystery of Israel, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part has befallen Israel, until the fullness, the full number, of the Gentiles becoming not meaning till the last Gentile is saved but meaning that when this great work of the gospel has brought in men and women of every tongue and kindred and race then God will turn back to the Jewish people, the natural branches and will melt the hardening and give back vision and salvation And so it says, and so all Israel, not meaning just Jews physically, but all Israel means all those saved by the grace of God. Gentile and Jew, and so all Israel, the elect people of God, saved to sin no more. And then comes this wonderful word, listen to it, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sin. Now this is amazing. Where does he quote it? It is quite extraordinary. Because the Hebrew in Isaiah 59 and verse 19, the last verse of Isaiah 59, it says very clearly, And a Redeemer shall come to Zion and to those who turn from ungodliness in Jacob. Exactly what happened. The Lord Jesus came to Zion and He saved those who turned from ungodliness in Jacob. He actually did it. It's wonderful. That was the early church. It was absolutely wonderful. But now... We have this variation. I believe it's the Spirit of God. As it is written, the Deliverer shall come out of Zion and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I believe we are so near to this day, O dear child of God, Listen to this. It's it's simply amazing. Is there any wonder that the world is in turmoil? Is it any wonder that this tremendous force against anti-Semitic force is developing everywhere? Surely it is not flesh and blood. It is to do with Satan and the powers of evil and darkness. But listen to this. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is to do with the whole great gospel work in the whole world. It says in Galatians 3 and verse 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham over this verse. And in thy seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. I don't know how many Jews ever thought That in the end it would go to the ends of the earth. And there would be those who would come into the salvation of God. And the fullness of God. And the purpose of God. The kingdom of God. Through the Lord Jesus. I say this is tremendous. Where are we? We are not at the beginning. We are at the end. Things are moving now so fast, we hardly can keep up with them. But dear child of God, in the light of all of this, you and I need to allow the Lord to deal with us. If our vision has grown dim, if somehow or other we have been compromised in our understanding, we need the Spirit of God to touch us. Just as Abraham was at a great turning point in divine history, we are at another turning point. The completion of the work of the gospel and the salvation of the house of Israel. Can you imagine the joy in heaven when that is completed? But many children of God are asleep. They just have absolutely no idea. The Antichrist is coming. That's why I said what I said about America last night. I don't think America is going to escape this. The Antichrist is coming. I would to God that this would be the place of safety and refuge. I don't think so. Satan desires this nation more than he desires many others. And when he moves in, he will seek to destroy every vestige he can of biblical faith and understanding. But, dear child of God, there is a rapture. Also, it could come any time. The Antichrist hasn't yet appeared. In my understanding of the scripture, we have to go a little way into this time when he does appear. But praise God, there is a rapture. And thirdly, the Lord Jesus is coming. And when he comes, the war is over. Dear child of God, you and I have a tremendous privilege. We've been called with a high calling. We have been granted as our birthright, revelation. As the Lord Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so it has to be with you and me. If you have lost your vision, why don't you get on your knees and tell the Lord, I believe I have been blinded. Why don't you ask the Lord to touch your heart and the eyes of your heart so that you could see more clearly than ever you saw this God of glory. May he give us grace not to be disobedient.